But uh, to their credit, uh, the song does start with some very important and I think essentially human questions. But it's clear that the writer of the song did not read the book of Acts because the song assumes many things that would be completely foreign to the earliest Jesus followers and the movement of the church in Acts. Namely, that the central question of the gospel is what happens when you die. The gospel is, in fact, much bigger and happily much more interesting than that. And this morning's text is another case in point. So if you would, in your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 8. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8, this is the word of the Lord. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. When some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Them, Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I plead with you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them them, that they fled out of the house naked. Whoa, (laughs) that didn't make the VeggieTales version, I don't think. Um, And wounded. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, Everyone was awestruck, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. And so Paul um, goes on to um, Macedonia and Achaia, and then on to Jerusalem. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 19, where we meet a man named Demetrius. So a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little uh, business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said men you know that we get our wealth from this business you also see and hear that not only in ephesus but in almost the whole of asia this paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come in may may come into disrepute but also that the temple of the great goddess artemis will be scorned And she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with with the confusion and people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Astrakakis and who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia who were friendly to him sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed 
forward, who, who the Jews have pushed forward. And Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So um, I was a history major in college. And for all of you kids at home who are wondering what major you should do, if you become a history major, you too can have a lucrative career as a Young Life Area Director. So, um, but as a history major, uh, on midterms and final exams, uh, we would be asked to write essays that would sort of compare and contrast. So compare and contrast different events, historical figures, arguments, etc. So there are two sets of comparisons in this text that when drawn out and juxtaposed against each other, point to some important questions that I want us to work through this morning. So comparison number one. Look at the beginning of our text in verses 8 through 12. On the one hand, you have Paul arguing in the synagogue for three months and arguing in the lecture halls of Tyrannus every day for two years. That's, that's, That's a long time. And on the other hand, the text describes what we might call various miraculous events such as the removal of demons from people, sickness and disease being healed, even by just touching Paul's handkerchief and apron. Paul had an apron. Maybe he was a baker as well. Who knows? So the first part of this comparison, one might call an intellectual proclamation of the gospel. And the second, one might call an experiential proclamation of the gospel. And it's interesting to see these two very different forms of proclamation juxtaposed right next to each other. Paul did both. The leaders of the early church did both. Both are present throughout the book of Acts. Luke includes both. In fact, he, in this instance, they are included right next to each other. And in principle, most of us would nod our heads in agreement that these two forms of gospel proclamation are both legitimate and indeed important. But I think it's safe to say that in our modern Western American evangelical context, we tend to favor the former over the latter. If there is a pendulum, I would say that it has swung significantly towards the intellect. We tend to give more weight and credence to one's intellectual understanding, namely what one knows about the gospel, versus how one has experienced the effects of the gospel or how one has experienced something that they intellectually know to be true. Some friends of ours, along with another couple, started this incredible nonprofit organization called Preemptive Love. Uh, And they do so much beautiful work throughout the Middle East. But when it first started in Iraq, they were providing, uh, helping to provide much-needed heart surgeries for kids. And throughout their time in Iraq, uh, many of their friends who were Muslim began to meet Jesus in their dreams, or as in, in, in Arabic, uh, they, they call him Isa. And they begin to meet Jesus in their dreams, and Jesus begins to call them individually by name in their dreams to follow him. And many, many of them did just that. It was just incredible stories. But when they returned to the States and shared these amazing stories with various church groups, they were more often than not met with a significant amount of pessimism and distrust as to whether this form of gospel proclamation was, uh, this form of gospel proclamation and indeed these conversions were legitimate. And the question is, why did they get that response? Because meeting Jesus in your dreams doesn't fit that well in our neat and tidy systematic theology boxes that feed our intellects. 
And yet people do meet Jesus in their dreams. In fact, it's one of the many ways, particularly in the Middle East right now, that the Lord has used to reveal himself. Scripture itself even talks about it, and it continues to happen today. A hyper-focus on the intellectual gospel proclamation, as is the case with anything else, can lead us down the path of thinking that this is not just a way that God moves, but in fact is the way that God moves. And I think this emphasis can be traced back to the Enlightenment and the modern idea of trying to systematize very complex things. And in response to the Enlightenment thinking, the church in the West, understandably so, began to focus on proclaiming a rational, reasoned, and intellectually systematized form of faith. But this begs the question, have we fallen in love with the mind at the expense of the rest of the human person? As James K.A. Smith says in his masterful work, You Are What You Love, have we reduced human beings down to simply a brain on a stick? Now, please hear me. I am not suggesting an either-or between intellect or experience, nor am I trying to elevate experience and discredit the mind. For it was Paul himself who wrote, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So part of what it means to be transformed is to have a renewed mind. But I think part of having a renewed mind is recognizing its limits. Recognizing that much of the goodness of Jesus and his kingdom cannot be contained in the intellect alone. Jesus never said, here's my list of top 10 truths for you to know. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not a system. Truth is a person, which requires from us new and better language, more nuance, and it invites us to look beyond our simplistic two-dimensional wooden systems into full-blown three-dimensional landscapes packed full with vivid pictures and stories that capture not just the mind, but the heart, soul, spirit, and body. So this first comparison leaves us with much to consider and process. So comparison number two. So the first part of this comparison is found in verses 18 through 20. So on the one hand, you have believers who openly share in public about their practices of idolatry. In fact, they begin burning their books of magic in front of everyone. And on the other hand, in verses 20 through the end of chapter 19, you have these artisans and other worshipers of Artemis who, upon hearing of this good news message from Paul, cling ever more tightly to their idolatry, even to the point of saying, great is Artemis, over and over again. There's even a financial component to this comparison. After the burning uh, after the, the burning of the books of magic, it says in verse 19 that the value of these books was found to be 50,000 silver coins. I don't know what that equates to in Bitcoin, but we can figure that out maybe. Whereas the artisans and craftsmen who made items for the worship of Artemis complained that this good news will destroy them financially because they heard that this God that the followers of the way worship does not live in temple made by human hands. So there would be no need for statues and idol worship. Now, the, the worship of Artemis or Diana, Artemis being her Greek name and Diana being her Roman name, was absolutely massive. In fact, the temple of Artemis itself was 
uh, was enormous. This temple was, without a doubt, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Archaeologists have found dozens of Artemis statues and icons, both large and small, all throughout what is modern-day Turkey. So this is the belly of the beast, as it were, for idolatry in the ancient world. So you have the pure surrendering of idolatry on the one hand, and the absolute clinging to idolatry on the other. The latter is a white-knuckled grip on the things that were thought to give life, while the former is not just an open hand, it's actually an all-out throwing away of what is in fact destroying life in an effort to embrace the life found in Jesus. Unlike comparison number one, the second comparison does not leave us with the luxury of a both-and response. In response to the question, intellectual proclamation or experiential proclamation, which is it? It's a both-and, we would say. But we cannot say rejecting idolatry, embracing idolatry, which is better. The response cannot be both-and. Gospel proclamation can be a both-and, but responding to the gospel cannot be a both-and. It cannot be Jesus is Lord and great is Artemis. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means that Artemis is not. And it's easy for us to be blown away and admire the faith of those who burned their books of magic in public to denounce their idolatry. But likewise, I think it's easy for us to dismiss the worshipers of Artemis as silly pagan people who just didn't get it. If we're honest, I think we can read this and be tempted to look down on this crowd of people as a silly, primitive people who were just a victim of their own time. I mean, look at us now. With all of our knowledge, discoveries, scientific and technological advancement, look at humanity now. Look at how far we've come. Surely we would never act like that crowd of people. I mean, we got TikTok, Uber, and Zoom. What more could you want? We may not be standing in a large crowd outside of an enormous temple with an idol in our hand saying, great is Artemis. But we are living lives that sometimes suggests that our hearts are saying, great is fill in the blank. We all live lives that can desperately cling to the things that we long to rescue us from our deepest longings and fulfill our greatest desires. So friends, the question is, who or what is your Artemis? The crowd shouted, great is Artemis. But what is your heart shouting this morning? Is it great is comfort? Great is success. Great is the American dream. Great is power. Great is conservatism. Great is liberalism. Great are my personal liberties. Great is fame, affirmation, and notoriety. For me, my heart is shouting, great is money and financial security. And there's a lot of reasons for that. How I grew up uh, being a man and wanting to provide, my, provide for my family and yet having a career that is not very lucrative. And in addition to that, raising money and, inviting, and, and, and being around people with incredible wealth, I can get caught up in the allure of it. And my heart 
can oftentimes shout, great is money, because maybe, just maybe, those things can make me enough. And perhaps my deepest longings can be met. And we all know the answer to that and how that goes. Okay, enough of me on the therapy couch. Uh, the therapy couch. Now it's your turn. Two questions and two encouragements from this text. Question number one. With what form of gospel proclamation do you most resonate? Is it the intellectual proclamation or is it the experiential proclamation? Encouragement number one. This week, what if you took one step of growth towards the form of gospel proclamation that resonates with you the least? So if you are an intellectual proclamation person, perhaps take the hour that you would spend exegeting scripture, reading that theological book, listening to that podcast, and take a walk in silence and ask the Lord to speak to you as you walk. Maybe try one new spiritual practice that involves your body and movement, or perhaps call someone you haven't spoken to in a while and ask if you can pray for them over the phone. If you're the experiential proclamation person, Maybe instead of taking your me and Jesus walk, you sit down and read a large portion of scripture and take notes. Instead of listening to worship music on the drive to school or work, maybe listen to a podcast. Perhaps instead of grabbing a novel for your next book, you read a theology book. I just wish I knew of someone that had a YouTube page where they review books on a regular basis. If anybody knows someone, just let me know. I don't know anyone. Question number two. In your own heart, who or what is your Artemis? An encouragement, number two. Whatever your Artemis might be, there's the old adage, you can't have the fruits without the root. So ask yourself this week, what is the root of this desire? Where does it stem from? When did it first make an appearance in my own life? I think that these questions and finding the root of these desires will help reveal the necessary actions to begin the journey of releasing the bonds of control that this idol has in your life. Friends, you may resonate with the intellectual proclamation of the gospel or the experiential one. But isn't it beautiful that the good news does not just come to us in one form? The good news about this good news is that it can come to us through a myriad of forms so that every kind of person might come to the reality that Jesus Christ is life. This reality of the universe is too vast, too profound, and too beautiful to just be expressed in one single solitary way. And praise the Lord for that. If this morning you find yourself like the worshipers of Artemis clinging to the things, clinging to things in hopes that they somehow rescue you from your deepest longings. If that's you, Jesus still sees you. He still knows your name. He knows your story. He loves you more than you could ever know. And that is the reason he is calling you by name to release your grip on the idols that are robbing you of life and life to the full. 
the prologue to the Gospel of John describes the Messiah Jesus in this way. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. So friends, may you not just know this life and light in your intellect, but may you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, experience this light and life today, right now, in this very moment. Because church, this is what we were made for. Let me pray. Jesus, the good news that you have raised from the dead and that you stand victorious over death itself and that new creation has been launched, that good news, we are so grateful, comes to us in so many different ways. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord, when we make your good news message too simplistic, too wooden, too systematized because we often miss so much that you have for us. I pray this morning that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would allow us to experience your life and light. I pray that we would know deep in our bones that we belong to you and that you deeply love us even though we cling on to the Artemises in our life that we think can give us life. And I pray that we would be people who would have the courage to ask the question, where these desires come from, that we might be released from the bonds of control that these idols have in our life. If we are longing to be free people, because that's how you made us to live. So, Lord, give us the courage to receive your forgiveness. Give us the courage to not just let the idols go, but throw them away and never look back. Because as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And I pray that's how far we would remove our idols from our life, Lord. Not because you are angry with us, but because you love us too much. Because you're longing for us to be free. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, free us, Father. May we throw the idols away. That life and life to the full might spring up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Um, I'm going to transition to taking communion here in a minute. Um, a few folks are handing out the cups. I ask you to hold the cups and wait until I tell you, instruct you to, to open them up. Because I want to take a moment. Jordan just gave us some prayers and some questions to take to the Lord. I actually want to invite you to do that right now um, while this is fresh on our minds. So I'm going to read a verse from Romans chapter 12. And then I want to give you 30 seconds or so to actually speak, speak to the Lord. I would encourage you to speak right now to God. It's really easy when, you know, you hear a sermon, you hear a challenge. It's easy to kind of tuck it in the back of your mind and think I'll get to that tomorrow or Tuesday or whatever. And then just things slide away. But I want to challenge you to think right now and speak to the Lord um, about what Jordan shared. 
ask God, do I feel drawn more to the intellect or more to the experience? What would you have for me in that? What step can I take in that? Or is there an idol that came up for you? What's your Artemis? Um, something is coming up. I have one. Um, if something is coming up um, for you, then talk to the Lord about that and ask what might be my next step towards relinquishing that, towards releasing that idol in my life. So I'm going to read this verse from Romans 12, and then we're going to have about 30 seconds of silence, and we'll show, again, encourage you to talk to the Lord, and then I'll instruct you as to when to take communion together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your whole bodies, whole bodies, intellect and experience, to offer your whole bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Pray you'd protect what you've done in our hearts and minds this morning. Draw us to both the intellectually bold and experientially rich experience of your gospel this morning. On the final night that Jesus was with his disciples, he shared shared a dinner with them. He broke bread and poured wine and said, this is my body and blood broken and spilled for you. Um, and it's that that we celebrate when we take this cup. So I invite you to open the top of your cup and take out the wafer, which points to his broken body. Open the lid and dip it into the juice, which points to his spilled blood. And let's take it together as a family this morning. Lord Jesus said he would drink, he would drink this again in the new kingdom with us. So I pray we'd be hopefully drawn in our imaginations towards that day this morning as we celebrate what our Savior has done for us. Amen.